So we are uh, taking a look at John 17 today. And Jesus is this a famous section because Jesus prays for himself. He prays for his disciples. And then the surprising part um, is that Jesus prays for us. Um, which there's certain times in scripture where Jesus reaches across the boundaries of space and time and he touches us where we are right now in existence and he offers us opportunity to participate in his ministry. Uh, one example is the story of this, uh, the four soils. The sower goes out to sow the seed. So if you are a sower of the word of Jesus, if you spread the word of Jesus, you are a sower, you have then become a participant in the parable of Jesus, which is pretty cool, right? And so the same thing happens here today in our study um, as he goes through this prayer. The last section of the chapter 17 is he prays for future believers. And so that's us. Um, and this is um, chapter 17 is the last day Jesus uh, will have on earth as a free man before his arrest, um, before his trial, his crucifixion. And I'd see to tell you, chapter 17 of John is so full, is so rich. Um, it is very difficult to comprehend in one simple reading. Um, and so for me, I struggle to grasp um, all that Jesus is trying to transmit to us. It is just so full and complex. Um, but Jesus's prayer to us is divided up into three sections. Jesus, of course, prays to the Father as he is a, approaching the cross, his his final destination, his final aspect of his grand mission, the grand mission that God has established for all of space-time, the redemption of humanity. And he's asking God to keep him, the Father, to keep him on focus and on task and to, to complete his mission. And then Jesus uh, takes his closing moments uh, as a free man, and he lifts up his present disciples, those who are with him at this moment, still in time, who haven't betrayed him, and he tries to pray for them to buttress their faith um, and their strength against the evil one, against sin and temptation, and for the greater mission that will follow on, the Great Commission, the spreading of the words of Jesus. And then Jesus closes out chapter 17 as he prays for you. Um, and he prays for me, those future believers, who we are. And that truth that Jesus had you in his mind, as he sat there in the closing hours of that day, when he would no longer see a sunrise as a free man again, um, as he faced the cup, sin's punishment, the worst that the devil in hell could foist upon him. It's heartbreaking. It's completely humbling um, for me to sit there and, and look at that and think that in those moments, he's thinking about us. And um, it's very convicting. But first, I think that to set the tone, to set the table for all that, I would like for us to start in the first 11 verses of chapter 18, because I think you need to have your mind set right on where Jesus is and what he is facing as he delivers up these prayers. So as we start in chapter 18 and verse one, I would like for us to start with a prayer. Ron, would you be willing to pray for us as we begin this today? Thank you. Dear Lord, we... Thank you for this day you've given us together, together, we hear your word and open our hearts and minds that we might, uh, we might better understand the, the message you've given us. We ask that uh, you uh, strengthen us and encourage us as, as 
what you have in mind for each of us in, in the path that you've given us on this earth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So if you look at John chapter 18, the first 11 verses, I have it here on my screen, but I would love for someone just to read it for us from their translation. Who would be willing to do that? What is it? John chapter 18, verses 1 through 11, the opening section. Oh, thank you, Anna. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with the disciples and crossed the Kidney Valley. On the other side, there was an olive grove, and he said, I'm sorry, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met with him, met there with the disciples. So Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going on, to all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it with who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again he asked them, Who is it you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. I told you that I am he, Jesus answered. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and and struck the high priest servant, cutting off his right ear. The last servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup? The Father, he, he has given me. Thank you. So when you look at the first um, three verses here, and I just want to hit it, but I don't want any comment on this. Just when I say Judas, the betrayer, knows the pattern of Jesus. So he knows, um, and, and we have this thing in modern church that we want to understand. We want to understand Judas. Why did he betray Jesus? And um, and I think it might just be an exercise in the obvious. You know, Jesus, but Judas betrayed Jesus because Judas never embraced Jesus. He never uh, onboarded with the call of Jesus. Um, he never accepted the idea that I'm supposed to look at life differently now that I've got Jesus in me. And he couldn't get past his way of living and thinking from when he first met Jesus. And um, when a person truly becomes a disciple of Christ Jesus, that is when there must be change in the way you see life and the way you interact with others. Um, the way you approach conflict, there's be a new standard for the joy in your life. There's be a new way of seeing and valuing people and things. And on a practical level, Judas betrays Jesus to fulfill a prophecy. Um, on a technical level, what does Jesus, the magnitude of the reality of what Jesus is seeing is, is quite literally lost in translation for us as English people, English speaking people. All the words uh, of Jesus in chapter 17, the prayer, all of that he's praying for to the Father, to his current disciples, for the future disciples, all of that is lived out in these 11 verses right here, where he expresses and displays the love that he has called us to live by 
and he unites himself with the purposes of God the Father, and he does not run from the purposes of God in his life and at this time. And first, you must understand the local geography of where Jesus is when these 11 verses are taking place. They've left the city. They've gone across the valley. They've gone up the hill from the Garden of Gethsemane. Let's pretend I'm the the valley, the little brook Kidron. On one side, we have the city of Jerusalem. On one side, we have the, the, the Garden of Gethsemane. There is no light pollution at this time. The road is very obvious. It's very narrow. It's, it's not it's not an eight-lane expressway like we have in a city today. If you're Jesus over here on this hill, you can easily discern the pathway of the road that people would follow, even in the dark. Now, especially in the dark when you consider they didn't have streetlights. The light they would have to travel by would have to be brought with them, torches and lanterns, right? So he would look across and could easily see on this road torches and lanterns carried by people approaching him. And he would know what's approaching him. He would know the pain. He would know the agony. He would know the suffering. He would know the maliciousness. He would know all the things, the thorns in the crown on his head, the spitting in his face, the slapping, the beating, the cross, all of that, he would know it. And he could have escaped. He could have easily seen all of those people coming and ran away, but he stayed. Now, I need to tell you that when I say that we are really, is it's literally lost in translation, it's literally lost in translation, what's going on here. Because if you look at, I just pulled some English translations for us to look at. Yours is, is very typical, and most of them are, because none of them get it right. The New Living Translation uses a phrase like this. It says, a contingent of Roman soldiers and temple guards. The English version, the ESV, says that um, a band of soldiers and some officers and the chief priests and the Pharisees. Um, the Berean says, a cohort of officers and chief priests and Pharisees came. Uh, the, another one says, a troop of soldiers and guards and the chief priests and Pharisees came. So if you can imagine in your mind, what does a band of soldiers, what does a contingent of Roman soldiers, what does a group of temple guards, what does that physically look like? How many people are we talking about here? Is that, you know, the Beatles is a band, that's four, right? The Supremes are a band, right? Right? The, how, how big is a band? How big are these groups? So in our mind, we have this idea, maybe, maybe there's, Probably less people than us in this room, maybe. I mean, if we look judged by Hollywood, right? Well, I hate to tell you this, but Hollywood has never, ever, in my knowledge, filmed this correctly. The text of the word of the group of Roman soldiers is called a spira. It is a very specific military term. It means literally, this is quote, a military cohort, a tenth part of a legion, about 600 men, legionnaires. This isn't just boys in training. This is battle-hardened Roman soldiers signed up for 10-year tours of duty. If auxiliaries are used, it's either 500 to 1,000. Now, but that's not all. The Pharisees and the chief priests also come. So each one of them come with armed guards or temple guards, and Hollywood never gets it right. Josephus says, according to Josephus, they, the Pharisees, numbered more than 6,000. Now, if one-tenth 
of the Pharisees say, I'm going to go check this Jesus dude out. We're going to end this right now. And they decide to go with the temple guards and they bring the Romans as a symbol of authority. And they're all approaching. There could have been as many as 1,200 men marching down the road with torches and lanterns. This is going to be a very obvious event of what is approaching you as you're on this side of the mountain, looking towards the city and knowing what's awaiting you. But please get that picture in your mind. And Jesus has been praying for himself, his disciples, and now the test comes. And Jesus is on the side of the hill. And he has to decide what he's going to do. Is he going to run? Is he going to stay? Is he going to embrace it? And Jesus gives us the example that we in our lives are supposed to live by when we face whatever it is that's coming to us, whether it's a confrontation with someone we love, a conversation we don't want to have, a witness we don't want to make, whatever it is, Jesus says, you stand, you speak, you deliver, you don't run. And that's the example love does. And the reason he could do that is because he was united in purpose with his father, which is the other thing he calls for us to have in our relationship with him. Um, Excuse me one second. Jesus is teaching a very deep principle of Christianity here. The principle of love. Love is a bonding agent that creates lifelong unity. The love that Jesus had for his disciples and us, his future disciples, that was what bonded him to that mission that God had sent him on. And he lived it out through his life. And that's the only thing that will will sustain us in the mission of our lives is we face different tasks that God gives us along the way. The love of Jesus is on complete display in the face of these angry and powerful people who are just full of demonically empowered rage and the death in their eyes. And Jesus does not flinch. He does not run. He steps into it. He leans into it. He approaches them with, who are you looking for? He doesn't walk away. He doesn't hide in the midst of his disciples. And that's because the stakes are so high. His example does give us that emboldening model that we are supposed to embrace. In the words of Queen Esther, it would be much like this for us for such a time as this. This is our moment in life in the history of the world, where we are called to greater tasks and purposes beyond ourselves. This moment, this great struggle which we face is a divinely appointed engagement, and we should not shrink from it or walk away. Now, with that setting, with that context, let's look at chapter 17. In chapter 17, the chapter is broken up into three sections. Almost all your Bibles have it broken up into three sections. There's the first is the prayers of the Son. This is the sometimes called the high priestly prayer of Jesus, where Jesus is praying for himself directly to the Father. Um, Jesus is praying because he sees the work of the cross approaching. And he knows how painful and difficult it's going to be for him. And in verses 1 through 5, he addresses all that. The second section is where he prays for his disciples. He's praying for his current followers. Um, and in verses 6 through 12, he prays for them. So remember that uh, Pastor Marine talks about this almost every Sunday. He talks about that Jesus worked his model in multitudes, and he broke it down into smaller groups. Um, if you look at the Gospels, Jesus did minister to thousands of people at once, and then he would break that down. There's a, there's a section that talks about the 120 disciples. He works with them. Then there's a part that talks about the 70, and then the 12, the 3, and the 1. 
And that's what he does here. And so those are what he's talking about. And thirdly, Jesus prays for all the other believers in the future, the future glory. Jesus prays for his future followers in him. And in 16 to 23, Jesus prays for us, for you, and for me, and all the future believers. So please, don't allow the reality and the magnitude of that statement just to roll past you. Let it sink in for a minute. The Bible is true, and Christ is not a liar. So when Jesus says he's praying for all the future believers, Jesus has you in his mind when he prays. Let's look at the first six verses. Who would read chapter 17, one through six for us today? I will. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I have with you before the world existed. Please, will you read six as well? I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. So the words of chapter 17, this place where Jesus reveals, he's revealing his heart. Is really what he's doing. Um, he's revealing it to us as he engaged in this uh, very intimate conversation with God the Father. He discloses um, these grand and these majestic purposes, which are so huge. It is um, it's hard for, for my mind to grasp them at times, trying to squeeze all this big stuff into my tiny little human brain, and I cannot fully understand them. So please understand as I teach this to you, I do not fully comprehend all he's saying because it's so full, it's so rich, it's so deep, it's, it's so interwoven. Um, but the first thing Jesus does do is he turns his personal focus in verse 1 to the cross. The crucifixion is approaching. And in verse 2, we see Jesus declare that the cross of Christ displays his ultimate authority, and it brings us eternal life. Now, think about the miracles of Jesus. They have validated um, his claims to be Messiah, and now his glorification will be completed in the work of the cross. And those who witness the life of Christ um, and his authority, they've seen his authority. Think about his mission, his life. They've seen his uh, authority over nature. He will calm storms. He will walk on water. You've seen his authority over sickness where he will uh, chase away fevers, illness, uh, leprosy. He will chase away death and raise the dead, uh, blindness, deafness, debilitating injuries, um, incurable diseases. He takes them away. And all of that in the end leads to the death of death itself. The miracles of Jesus so his, show his authority over the dark spiritual forces um, as he at time and time again freed people from demonic oppression um, and he faces the chief of demons. He faced Satan at the temptation for 40 days and now Jesus approaches the cross and the cross is going to be the finer, final exercise of the supreme authority he has over all aspects of human life on earth because death will die. The resurrection is the ultimate identifying factor of the Messiah. 
And the miracle show his power over nature and spiritual worlds. And the resurrection will show his complete power over the most powerful force in our world, the power of death. Jesus gives us this a complete definition of eternal life in this prayer. He says this, eternal life is knowing God and Christ. And the principle for this section for us is that your life is a series of choices. And eternal life is the uh, one found in the eternal Christ. And when we choose to live our words and our life of Christ in individuals, we come, he comes out in our lives daily when we're living that out. Let's look at the next. Yes, sir. Prayer of Jesus underlines the fact of our salvation being a binary concept. You're either saved or not saved. You either know or you don't know. You either belong to him or you don't belong to him. You either see or you don't see. Uh, you're, you're either chosen by him or you're not chosen by him. You're either kept by him or you're not kept by him. Uh, my dad said, uh, you are the Father's Christmas present to Jesus. Jesus says, I haven't lost a single one, and I won't lose a single one. You are the Father's Christmas present to Jesus, and he is guarding you. So knowledge is a binary concept. You either know or you don't know. Um, Paul says, um, these Jews, they read the Bible, but they don't understand a single thing in there because the veil hasn't been lifted. So the veil is lifted, then you know. So the binary concept goes to the fact that God has to do everything. He lets you know. He chooses you. He uh, saves you. He brings you into eternal life. This cross is absolutely the center. Uh, birth of two and three. Uh, those you have given me. So <laughs> whose choice is it? God the Father's choice that you belong to Jesus. Uh, how do we know? We know because he opened our eyes, chapter 19. Um, so everything about salvation is binary, and it goes back to the Father's agency. And I think that that's what's clearly brought out in this prayer. So Yeah, no, it is. You are a gift. It's just, it, is a, it is a fascinating concept. And again, that's just some of that deep layers of, of uh, theological reality. And, it's to, and it also should give you a great um, self-worth and value to think that God placed value on you and he gave you to his son as a gift. And then Jesus sustains us in that. How many of you ladies have ever been slightly pregnant? None? Really? Yeah. And that's, that's it. You're either all in or you're not, right? And so you're either his or you're not. There's no slightly Christian. You're completely or you're not. Thank you for that. You said something about that. And, uh, I'm, I'm not disagreeing with it, but I'm just saying that it, when Paul talks about the resurrection in 15, he says, where is your victory? Where's your sting? He didn't say you're done with. He said, you don't have any power anymore because we have passed from this life into the next life immediately. And so death still, we just experienced it yesterday. Death still has its, as it's, thing here, but it has no power anymore. Where's your victory? Where's your sting? You you thought death was the ultimate, and I'm telling you, life eternal is the ultimate, and now death has no power. So it's not like it went away. It's just that he defeated 
death at the cross and it has no it has no power anymore mm -hmm. and so those of us that are walking this life if the lord doesn't return we will all die but it won't have any power it won't have any victory it won't have any sting because we believe that we are going to pass in the twinkling of an eye we shall be all changed in a moment this corruptible will put on incorruption this mortal will put on immortality and we will be changed and so death will still do its thing Sometimes I think it's like we say, the man with the withered hand, we say, be healed. And the world looks at it and says, he still has a withered hand. And spiritually, we might say, he is healed. You remember when Jesus taught and said, what do you think is harder, to heal this man's sins or to make him walk, walk? And of course, he knew to heal him is to forgive his sins. But that you might know the Son of Man has power, rise up and walk, and then he gets up to display, I already did the miracle when I forgave his sins. I have done the work. Now you have to receive the work that death has no victory. It doesn't have the power, but it will, to run around with the man with the withered hand and say, his hand is healed, I think we always have to put a comma there and say, he is healed. His hand is still withered, but he has been healed. And we're talking spiritual terms and the world doesn't understand what we're talking about because they see the man's withered hand. If we say death is no more, the world would not understand that at all. And we've got to tell them it doesn't have to sting. It's still there. No, no unsafe friends of Pastor D or, or your friend, um, I mean, uh, Jim, they're going to go, what, what are they talking about? Death is not here. Death is still here. Uh, is that clear? Mm -hmm. It just doesn't have any power. No, the Bible softens it by saying we sleep. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. Paul says that even a stronger person, that's First Thessalonians chapter 4, he refuses to say that a Christian funeral is death. He says, you fall asleep. Only Jesus died, but right. you fall asleep. So that's that's the gift that we've been given. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the authority of death over our lives was conquered yeah. by the authority of Christ in his death and resurrection. And that's and so we there's this odd concept in this chapter that Jesus says, I am in you, Father, and you are in me, and my followers are in me, and then I'm in my followers. And because of that, we have a unity within ourselves so that all that you have given me, I can give them. And that's very difficult for my little brain to wrap around. But I have to take those words as truth because I know who said them, Jesus. And that's wonderful because that does give us on days like this where we uh, we grieve the loss of Pastor D. Uh, we know that he, is not, he has not died. He has transitioned and passed on to eternal life. And he's with uh, God in heaven now. And so he's dancing on streets of gold, celebrating all that God has done um, in him through his life all these years. Let's look at the next section, 6 through 12. Um, who would be so kind as to read 6 through 12, please? Thank you. I have re revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, 
and they believe that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those who you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. So again, these verses, um, they are just so compactly wound up with all these deep theological concepts. It's difficult to take it all in at once. So let me just try and draw your attention to a few verses. Um, in verse six, Jesus is placing infinite value on his followers because like Pastor Perry said, they are the gift from the Father. And please notice there are um, four truths that Jesus is going to express in these verses, um, uh, in verse six about his disciples. And we are disciples of Christ. So they are about to us. The first thing is that the disciples of Jesus belong to the Father. The second thing is that they are a gift from the Father to the Son. The third thing is that Jesus revealed the Father to the disciples. And Jesus does that as we read the Gospels. He is constantly revealing the Father to us. And then the fourth thing is that the disciples obeyed his words. And that goes back to that idea with Judas. Judas wasn't right because Judas didn't follow and obey the words. And so when we meet someone who claims the name of Christ, but they don't live the life of Christ, it draws us to a point of questioning if they really know Christ. Because those who are true followers and disciples of Jesus not only know him, they also listen and obey him, his words in particular. In 6 through 8, the words of Christ he gave to the 12, to the 120, those disciples that were there at that time, they came from the Father. That's what Jesus is saying. And then they received those words and they believed them. And what are the words of Christ? Truth declared and actions displayed. Jesus is declaring to us here that the truth of how to live, how to interact with other people, how to have your relationships, what is right, what is wrong. And then Jesus validates and authenticates the truth of his instructions by demonstrating his authority over everything. And very specifically, by healing people who were broken physically, spiritually, and emotionally. And the uh, one example I'll give you be this woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. He healed her, not just... Um, uh, on a, on a, in a physical sense, because of all she had gone through with her relationships, but he healed the relationships. He healed her psychologically, he healed her emotionally. He healed her spiritually by giving her forgiveness and then bringing her worth back to her in the eyes of God. So God is glorified by the work of Christ in all of us. In fact, all of us in some degree are that woman by the well that Jesus interacted with. We all have brokenness in ourselves. We'll have broken relationships. We have wrong choices we've made in the past. And we all need that restoration that only Christ can bring us. So Jesus is not valuing us for what we can do for him. Very important to notice this. He is giving value to us because of what he has done for us and what he does in us and through us in the lives of others. In verses uh, 13 through 19, let's look at those for a second. Who would read that section for us, please? 
Thank you, Marlene. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is true. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. So the faith of the 12, the 120 disciples is about to be tested in, in a world without Jesus. They spent these uh, three years uh, with Jesus, and now they're about to experience a world without Jesus. So Jesus is um, praying for them, for their future. Um, the future reach of the mission of Jesus is dependent on this core group, these 12, which now 11, right, with the betrayal of Judas. And um, we should also pour our lives into others. This is an example Jesus gives us. Um, on how we're supposed to live our lives. One of the things we're supposed to be doing is not just sort of obeying the rules, but we're also supposed to be pouring our lives into other people and building them up, discipling them, bringing them into Christ and teaching them um, not just about salvation, but how to live in Christ. And then I want to draw your attention to verse 14. I have given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. So why does the world hate Jesus? Why can't they tolerate and live Beside Christians, why do they hate us? Well, if I want to believe in unicorns or Easter bunnies or green leprechauns or garden gnomes or mermaids, what of it, right? Who cares? But if it should be no harm to anyone, right? But if I take and I substitute the Easter bunny with Jesus Christ, all hell breaks loose. And we like Christ are not part of this world, just as um, your body will repel any foreign agent that enters it. Whether it's a virus or a splinter under your hand or dust in your eye, the world is the same way. Um, you are considered dangerous and you're not part of the world as a follower of Christ. And it will naturally push you away and repel you. And more specifically, that world system hates Christ in us. And um, Jesus saw this and he prayed for us. Now, Jesus prays for our protection here. He prays, prays for our protection against the evil one. Um, he prays for our unity as believers. Um, he prays for our sanctification as individuals. Um, and our life in Christ is an arrangement of uh, strange contradictions. Yes, sir. All the way back to Genesis 3, God said to uh, Adam, and I will put enmity between your seed and the seed of the evil one. So the woman's seed would be Jesus and the evil one. Uh, so it goes all the way back to the beginning of the story that there's going to be this animosity. And isn't it interesting that God says, I will put enmity between the two of you. Um, so there's going to be uh, absolutely no uh, truce until <laughs> Jesus comes again. It's going, you know, and so I guess the word to Christians is get over it. I mean, because uh, be realistic uh, about what your life is going to be like in your confession of the truth. It isn't going, 
we always think maybe if I just do uh, proclaim the gospel well enough, it'll be received with wonderful thanksgiving in the world. Are you kidding? You know, no, you're going to be rejected and mocked and everything else. But for those who do hear, it will, it will be received with joy. So, yeah, that was, you know, I think that was somebody told me once, maybe it was Joe that said that Martin Luther believed that he couldn't understand how people could uh, could not just hear the gospel and immediately buy into it and go along with it. And it just shocked him that people could not uh, hear and receive the gospel immediately. So uh, the, the, the strange contradictions of our life in Christ are illustrated in this verse. If you look at what he's saying as you go through these words, um, he saves us from the world, but then he refuses to take us out of the world. We have to remain. Um, he prays for us to be protected in this world while granting us very specific tasks with eternal purposes that weigh not upon our eventual salvation um, and not us escaping hell, but they are a reflection of the relationship we have with God, the father in Christ. Um, and they also are a reflection of the son's authority over us and our new life in him, our new eternal lives that we have in him. And we cannot, we cannot protect ourselves from the evil one, Satan, Lucifer, demons. So Jesus prays for us to be protected, and then puts the remedy for our protection in our hands. In verse 17, he says, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So we are to take up the word of truth as a personal action against the evil one in our lives. Um, We also are identified with Christ Jesus and in Christ Jesus, so much that Jesus says in verse 16 that they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So just think about that for a second, that when you become a believer, you are as foreign to the world as Jesus was. You wonder why they hate you. You, You're you're aberrant. You don't belong here. You're not natural to them. In verses uh, 10 through 9, he says this, but on behalf of those you, God the Father, have given to me, Christ the Son, for they, we who believe and trust in Jesus today, that's us, are yours, God the Father. And all I, Jesus, have is yours, God the Father. And all you, God the Father, have is mine, Jesus the Christ. And in them, believers, I, Christ Jesus, have been glorified. Easy, right? It's difficult stuff. So we belong to the Father. And the Father gave us to Jesus, and which makes us doubly foreign to this world. So as the world knows it, and it can sense that in us, the same way um, we have a farm. And so occasionally um, things will die, Uh, snakes, rodents, things like that. And you will walk out and you're feeding the animals and this stench will hit you. It's the stench of death. And you think somebody's dead around here. Maybe it's a possum or a rat or something, but it's dead. And you can smell that stench. You're probably familiar with that stench, right? You've probably, you, you noticed, you know death when you smell it. Now, the same thing is true for us, but in an opposite way. When we as believers walk into a room, it's not the stench of death the world smells, it's the aroma of life. And just as repelling as the stench of death is to us, the aroma of life can be to them, which is another reason they will not like you. Yes, sir. Just back up just a little bit. You just said something that reminded me. You said something I think that um, that we have value because God loves us, which 
a little bit, a little bit abstract, but I was thinking about this particularly when I had young, young kids and there's a situation where my young daughter had lost some little stuffed toy, which was worthless, except that we were in a furniture store and it dropped somewhere. And we couldn't leave that store without it. We searched the whole store until we found that little stuffed toy because she put value. She loved the toy. She put value on the toy and it had value. Yeah. And that, that's a one way of thinking somehow God puts that value on. I mean, it comes from him. Yes, it does. That's a great example of, of the worth transfer that God gives to us because he loves us and what he does for us. Um, in verse, let's see, the closing chapter of 17, it should bring us the most comfort in our lives today because this is the part where Jesus actually prays for me. I don't want you all to say that. Can you all say that? Jesus prays for me. Jesus prays for me. You need to own that and believe that. It's the words of the Bible. It's the words of Jesus. He's praying for future believers, and we are those future believers. So those are the words I wrote in the margin of my Bible. Jesus prays for me. In this section of the passage, because the prayer is a powerful gift from God. Prayer itself is the most powerful gift we have from God in our Christian life. Prayer is a a personal conversation that we are permitted to have with the almighty God. Um, Consider all that we lose in this life when we either ignore that reality, that opportunity, or reject it completely as this great gift the prayer is. And consider this, when we bow before God, God knows us. He knows our struggles because Jesus experienced struggles like we experienced struggles um, in his life. He knows our pains. He knows physical and emotional relationships. And he knows all the things that we go through, Jesus went through as well. He's felt those pains in life. And he knows what we go through. And the other part about this is think about this. Know this, God hears you. And he desires to hear from you at all points of your life. He can take all of our pain and all of our sorrow and he can take that and he can craft it. He can rearrange it. He can work it into an eternal good work that can accomplish his good purposes through it and through us at the same time. God is not seeking in prayer an eloquent orator. He's not looking for the linguistically precise. God is looking for our hearts to be open, bare, and revealed before him what's on our hearts, what's on our minds, what bothers us, what troubles us, what are the deep desires, the deep hurts, what we really need from him. And he longs that to be all put before him in earnest reflection. And the prayer um, was a constant and very important part of Jesus's life. Over and over again, Jesus would pull away from everyone, from the crowds, even from the disciples, and he would go away and be alone to pray. And that's something I think that many of us have lost. Um, someone did, said this, prayer for a Christian should be like breathing for a person. It's essential and common in life. And um, it's continual. And part of the continual aspect of prayer is 
having this awareness of our need for God all the time um, that he needs to, he's with us in whatever situation we need to acknowledge that and actively involve him in that, in our lives moment by moment and uh, be partially in this continual dependence on God in prayer. Someone said it like this, every moment, whether mundane or magnificent, painful or pleasant, offers an opportunity to bring glory to God. We glorify God anytime we acknowledge his provision, we acknowledge worth or character in our lives. Jesus portrays for us this unity of the followers because he prayed for the protection of the world, of his people in the world. He prays and expects them to engage in in the world, in relationship. God does not call us to monasteries to live in, in, in cloisters, in castles away from the world. God calls us to interact with people in relationship. Um, let me ask you this. <clears throat> We're going to be closing out here and we can, we can, there's a lot that's been covered here. So we have some time we can discuss it. Does the darkness of our present world tempt you to retreat to a safe space? a safe relationship or a safety of maybe not even getting engaged in the world. Desperate times and there's times to share about the Lord. That's good. That's what we... Because I'm getting older, but I don't have the inhibitions like I used to sometimes when strangers. Sure. Yeah. And that's, that's a good point. So um, sometimes when you get towards the end of the game, you don't have so much to lose. So you can go for uh those seven yards on fourth down, right? Yeah. <laughs> Beg your pardon? One is Alabama. Or oh, 31 yards, yeah, on fourth down. Yeah. <laughs> you wonder why these teams all score so much in the, in the end. They take a lot of risks that they weren't willing to take before because it's risky. And... Um, <clears throat> Sometimes when we approach the end of our life, we get we can take more risks. We feel, well, I'm not going to lose my job over this now. What do I care? I'm not going to lose my friends over this. I'm not going to lose my family over this. I think Jesus wants to go earlier in your life and say, um, did you not think I was going to take care of you? You know, in those those relationships, I, I shared with y'all a couple of weeks ago, maybe a month ago. I had an encounter with all my sisters and it didn't go well. Um, it really went bad. And uh, one of them has since kind of made peace on with the text and I made peace back with her. And the other one I haven't, but it was her birthday yesterday. So I called her and we apologized to each other and said, we're just very sorry. And um hurtful words she said you know we disagree with each other on a lot of things but we we, we will always love each other so um but in the moment it was risky to bring a topic up and uh and it didn't lead it didn't go well but in the end um it's 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 out there at least to to say okay I, I can't I can't go back on this one yeah you know I, I can't I can't back up from that but I can still love you we can disagree but I can still love you and I do so 
Um, I think we're, we should be risk takers. Yes, sir. What hits me from the end of Jesus' prayer is what he reemphasizes from chapter 14, and that's the objective, his objective for us, which is to get us home. He says, I can hardly wait to get you to where I am and with the Father that you can see my glory and that we'll all be together. Now, as a missionary kid, home is a, is a, got a different definition for me than it does for a lot of people. Uh, I grew up a half a planet away from here. And in a certain sense, uh, every time since I was 17, I've been away from home. Um, but home, uh, and then we didn't have our first house until I was probably 35 out in San Diego. And I was going, finally, this little piece of ground belongs to me. I was feeling like Abraham who didn't have anything <laughs> except his burial place in the promised land. And I said, finally, we've got this little piece. So home for Jesus, for home for all of us has a different definition, very strong definition. But for Jesus, it says, I put that in your heart so that you have a little glimpse of what I've got as the objective for my salvation. I want to get you there. I want to get you to the place that's truly home. You know, you have great movies like Shane and, and, and that kind of stuff where, where you're trying to protect the homestead from these horrible rustlers, you know, and then Shane is walking, riding off into the into the sunset because he can't stay at that home, which he really, really began to love as he saw this mom and dad and this kid. So home is always on Jesus' mind as he's going to the cross. Uh, and home is what he wants us to keep in mind, too, is, as he says, you know, for Pastor D, uh, he's finally home, clearly, um, and it's something he longed for all his life, and Jesus says, well, welcome home. So, yeah, but, but Jesus in this whole prayer says, I have kept them, I've called them, I've chosen them, and he speaks to them particularly and says, I have work for you to do. And that's, you know, we 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 are called to do the work before we get there. Yeah. Before we get it. Yeah. But knowing that eternal picture should help us on the terrestrial. Yeah. Because we see the celestial and say, this is, we're pilgrims on a journey. We are, you know, then we're aliens in a foreign land. We have here no abiding city here. <laughs> but, but, but we are called to work here. And somebody said, well, he's so earth, heavenly minded. He's no earthly good. Jesus said, I have called you to go into the world. And this whole concept of discipleship that we're focusing on now for the last three or four or five months and probably will for the next year or two or three or four or five is that I have called you to be fishers of men. I have work for you to do. You don't worry about when I call you home. I'll call you home when I'm ready. And there is a day appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. But in the meantime, we have to be focused on what would you have me do today and protect me from the evil one and protect me from the the world, my own flesh and the devil because I'm going out into the world to do what you called me to do. I'm not hiding in my house, you know, waiting for that day. And I think that needs to be our focus. Mm -hmm. What What can I do? What does the Lord want me to do? Anna, you had a 
Comment? I don't know if this has anything to do with the question that you asked. No, go ahead. It's kind of like what I feel for what Jim is saying too. Um, coming from New York, 9-11 was home to us and all that had happened. Um, there was a local pastor from Brooklyn, Pastor Vanke, who was asked to pray at the memorial service that they had at Yankee Stadium and brought all denominations and churches together in one stadium to just pray and to have this service. And he he did it. And he almost got his collar taken away for doing it because there were churches in the Midwest that were really prosecuting him for doing what he did. And his thing was he was spreading and prayed in the name of Jesus. You know, they were told to pray for what you would pray in your church. And he did it. And he did overcome that and didn't lose his collar. But, you know, here was a man who I know personally who was stepping out and saying, I'm going to spread the word of Jesus. Whether it's praying with anybody else, he did it. And it just kind of like he had no fear of being that disciple and being that I'm going to say what God wants me to say. And, you know, he shared with Deep and I how he prayed about this and how God, he felt, led him to do this. I remember that story at the time when it happened. That's fascinating that you know that person. Um, let me ask you all another question. How well do you know your neighbors? I see a giggle. <laughs> okay, all right. Time for confession. That's all. You're forgiven. Go ahead. What? We've been here two and a half years. Two and a half years. You think you should know them, right? <clears throat> you tell me. I'm, I'm asking a question. Yeah. We know them, but we don't know. You know, Hi, Bob. Good to see you. Have a nice day. Click yeah. the door closes. You have the surface. Right. But you don't have the underneath. Yeah. And yeah. if we're getting there, but I don't know whether it's me or, you know. Um, so let me know. And let me let me just say that I ask that question not as a as a as a as a stone thrower. Please understand that. Uh, I will tell you where I am with my neighbors. Um, I have uh, one neighbor that um, I believe they're believers. They were involved in church and they were uh, good believers. And now they aren't in church. So I, so that's not good, right? I have another one who I speak to constantly and um, he wants to hear. If I want to break off a conversation with him, all I have to do is say anything about Jesus or Bible and he walks away. That's, that's just what happens. I have another neighbor. Um, it's a young man and a young woman. Um, they appear to be decent people. They live together. They're not married. So they're, so I know that's not biblical. That's not Christ-like. So I know where they are. Um, so then, um, so let me tell you what I'm doing right now. So right now, I'm doing the prayer part. So right now, I'm praying for them. I'm praying for God to give me an opportunity to have an interaction with them. Um, and what's the interaction going to be like? I don't know. We'll see what God puts on my heart. Maybe it'll be 
inviting them over for a, for a coffee or for a meal or to bring, invite them to an oyster roast or to church or Christmas service. Who knows what that might be? But, um, I think that's where we all need to be. I think if we were willing to, you know, confess our sins before one another, we would say that that's where we all are. We don't know our neighbors as we should. Um, and that is the mission field that God has planted us in our neighborhoods and our neighbors. And he did it with a purpose because he has equipped us with experiences and life lessons and knowledge from the word specifically to reach, I believe, reach those people. Because he could have picked anybody to be their neighbor. He picked you. But he also, uh, you know, in our triad with pastors, sometimes I'm picking up on something that um, if, why did I meet this guy today? Because God prepared it, and we had a wonderful interaction. I have a neighbor, and I can go force the issue, or I can say, "Lord, you know I'm willing and I'm ready and I'm able." But uh, short of burning his house down, um, and I don't think that's what you're calling me to. That would be a good example so, of the fires of hell, right? <laughs> but, but, well, I guess I'm saying. The encounters that I'm experiencing in the last year or so are more God-ordained than they are Jim-ordained. And so I have some interactions with my neighbors. I have interacted. Uh, they have not chosen to fight the bait. And maybe I can chum the water a little bit more, but it's pretty hard to chum it more than I chum it. <laughs> and, and so the, the point I guess I'm making is they're going to live there for however they're going to live there and I'm going to keep, keep taking the little in, the little times that I have when I meet them at the mailbox when I invite them again to Tuesday night Bible study if they want to come when I can say hey I heard uh, something happen with your son I'm sorry we'll be praying about that I can do those interactions and then I'm going to have to let God do the rest on that issue. And then I'm going to not miss the others that he's bringing to me because I'm trying to force one here. And the neighbor is just the easiest one. Right. He lives right next door. Why am I not able to? Well, you can't force these things. God has chosen them. And, that, and you know, I'm, I'm getting older and older and older, but he's ordained some meetings for me. Yeah. So some others that he's just that I'm trying to ordain the meeting. So that's a great point that we do need to be relying on God to um to make these things happen. We need to be willing and praying about them. Yes, sir. Say something about the neighbor. You know, it's interesting what is our relationship with the neighbor, but I would ask another question. What is our relationship with people that we go to church with? If we have only a superficial spiritual relationship with the people that we come here to worship with. If we have not got to the point where we can share faith and we can talk honestly with each other, then it's probably going to be pretty hard to do outside of here with our neighbors who are not already in the body of us. So that's something to think about. Where are those opportunities? to intentionally share our faith and walk a deeper friendship with the people that we are here. 
Yeah, that's a great point, Joe. And I think that is what the the final call of a chapter of Christ is, is to uh, intentional interaction with the world and that relationship. And that also goes to other people. So, I mean, you could say not just who's your neighbor, but like you could say, how was your relationship with your coworker or members of your family? I mean, there, there are people, like you're saying, people in your church all around us that, that we can interact with. Yes, ma'am. You know, I was thinking of that when you had said about your neighbors. Um, back in the day before pandemic, you know, I worked in an office with about nine to ten girls. And one of the girls who, I don't know, she knows God, but she doesn't know. And she would always say, can you pray for me? Can you pray for my dad? And she was going for some kind of surgery and she was really, she's very neurotic and she has a lot of fears. And um, she said, can you pray for me? And God just touched me that moment. And I said, how about I pray with you instead of for you? And she said, do you mind if I ask anybody else if they want to pray with us? I had nine girls from my office holding hands and praying to Tracy. That's a powerful witness. And it, I still get the chills just thinking about it. And I just, I, I felt so overwhelmed with the Holy Spirit at that moment that I don't even remember what I prayed. It just, how the Spirit moved. And one of the other girls said to me, wow, you pray just like a priest does. <laughs> and I looked at her and I said to her, it really wasn't me. It was the Holy Spirit. And later on during the week, that same girl asked me about the Holy Spirit. And it was like, wow, like it really wasn't about that prayer to Tracy. It was about Ariana wanting to know more about the Holy Spirit. And from that moment on in my job, there was a different atmosphere around it. That the girls were praying. They, I'm like, if somebody said, I'm not feeling good, and one of the girls was going, I'll pray and pray for you tonight. You know? That's wonderful. And it was just, and even now through, you know, now it's all virtual and teams in each other. It's, can you give me, I need prayer. This is going on. And it's a group prayer that's going on at my job. And it was just that one thing, like 12 years and ago. That's, and that's great. And that's the power of one act of obedience um, in, in life. And that's a great witness. Um God's people, I'll close with this, God's people share in a common mission, but we also share in God's power um, and protection as we engage in the work of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are very grateful for uh, your prayers for us and the prayers you lift up for us even today. Help us to um, take advantage of the opportunity to pray that you grant us, and may we live in that, and may we be strong witnesses for for you. Protect us in this world from the evil one, and uh, sanctify us by your truth. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thank you all for being here.